Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. Between pop culture and social change, there are a variety of different interpretations and narratives that come to mind. For my guest today, the intersection of pop culture storytelling and social change has evolved into a vision to shift the thoughts and feelings of mass audiences. Bridget Antoinette Evans, CEO at Pop Culture Collaborative, is unearthing breakthrough narrative and engagement strategies to shed light upon the broken system that still exists in American culture. By partnering with creative and social justice leaders, the Pop Culture Collaborative elevates people's deep yearning to belong in a pluralist America and creates opportunities to shape the narratives that define American culture and drive social change in society today. Bridget, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you, it's good to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. So let's just start with the basic, which is what is Pop Culture Collaborative, besides sounding incredibly cool, and I know that you've worked with some incredible talent. What is it, why did you start it, which I think happened in 2017, and why does it matter today more than ever before? Wow, you start with the easy questions. They seem <laughs> like they're easy, but they're actually like really juicy. Well, you know, in a nutshell, the Pop Culture Collaborative is a fund that was created and launched in 2017 by primarily BIPOC women, immigrants, queer people in philanthropy who had been directly impacted by a lot of the really toxic and harmful narratives and norms in American culture. They were engaged in funding movements for social justice from, you know, policing to immigration and climate, gender justice. And they had this sort of foresight to understand that movements really couldn't achieve the level of change that they sought without contending with the cultural barriers that were preventing people from really seeing what a more just, more equitable world could look like and how we could get there. So they launched the collaborative as a fund to support the pop culture for social change field to transform the narrative landscape in this country around people of color, immigrants, refugees, Muslims, indigenous peoples, with a particular focus on people who are women, queer, trans, non-binary, disabled. And they understood that that kind of like large-scale narrative transformation really couldn't happen without engaging the entertainment, advertising, and media industries. So the Pop Culture Collaborative was created to invest in the infrastructure, the field building, the relationships, and the experimentation with the question of how pop culture and the stories that we all engage with every day 
can actually help to change what we think about ourselves, what we think about other people, how we understand really complex things like systemic injustice, systemic racism, misogyny, all of these like complicated realities in our in our society, how can the stories that we engage with, the characters, the plot lines, the immersive story worlds help us to make sense and help us to be able to unlock our imagination about what we could make together, the new norms, the new social systems, the new cultural spaces that we could create that would allow all of us to experience the like incredible sensation of belonging, of feeling safe, of feeling accountable, of feeling seen in our society, in our communities, in our families and other relationships. So it was a big, big vision that they set out with. And I came into the collaborative through kind of a long journey as an artist who was very, very clear. I worked in theater and film and television, and I was very clear, you know, by sort of my early 30s that the industry was suffering from a lack of imagination about who I was and who I could be as an artist. And that that was driven by things like systemic injustice within those industries, by lack of equity, systems that were creating incredible insecurity, whether it was for women, for queer people, for trans people, you know, for people of color more broadly. We were, as a community of artists, producers, even executives within the studio system, we were being asked to live at sort of a fraction of our potential in the roles that we were cast in, in the stories that we were financed to tell, in the kinds of like workplace cultures that we were being asked to survive within. And I personally didn't want to continue trying to build a career in that kind of really, really messy, painful and in some cases, dangerous industry. I wanted it to change because I wanted to be able to more freely work. And I knew that I was a part of a community of artists who desperately needed the industry to change so that we could actually fulfill our potential. And so I set myself on a course early in life to understand what the change was that needed to happen in the industry and in the world at large. I found movement leaders who helped me to ground my thinking and my approach in like, you know, social justice power analysis. And I studied anti-racist organizing and activism and how do you build power around transgressive ideas. And over time, began to coalesce into what was then a burgeoning field of culture change and began to actually lay down methodology and theory about how these stories interact with social justice movement goals to create momentum, cultural momentum for the systemic changes that we so deeply need. And that work is what led me to this particular position as a founding CEO at the Pop Culture Collaborative. 
it's kind of the culmination of life's work. I can't believe I have this job. <laughs> I couldn't have designed it better myself. And so that that is like what gets me up in the morning. And that's what's you know shaping my outlook moving forward. Have you ever done a TED Talk? I've never done a TED Talk. I've done a you lot of others. <laughs> no, I'm just, our listeners don't know or can't, but we are in this virtual studio. We can see each other and I'm just like mesmerized by what you're saying. And it's almost like a ticker through my head trying to figure out, oh my gosh, there's so much I want to talk about based on what you just unearthed and unpacked. I want to start with, at the end of the day, the goal is to create content, both implicit and explicit, that tells these stories, these narratives that you're talking about, right? And I'm asking that because there are like, there's explicit storytelling, which head on addresses issues, right? Around systemic change, you know, in everything that you had talked about. And then there, there's things like, and I'm just going to use this because it's an often used example. And I, I think it, it helps, I think, explain this, you know, will and grace. I think about will and grace when it comes to the LGBTQ community, as well as helping to really generate more awareness and support for same-sex marriage. And that might not have happened as quickly as it did or when it did, had it not been for shows like Will and Grace, right? And I'm, I'm using that as I, I think maybe a shallow, but I think an interesting example, because that is something I think a lot of us can understand because it's part of pop culture. And it was a both subtle, not so subtle way of bringing a community into the mainstream that had been misunderstood and also the victim of you know bigotry and hate for way too long. Yeah. Is that a bad example? I mean, it's a dated example, but I mean, that's what I think about, right? Like the power that pop culture can have on norms and how we behave and how we think and, and how we function in society. I mean, I think it's no surprise that that image of Will and Grace, for example, of Will and Grace comes to mind because it's actually a really great one. And it doesn't matter that it, you know, it comes from years ago because it still remains true that if you look, for instance, at the evolution of public sentiment around LGBTQI community, the issues like marriage equality, for instance, that pop culture played a really significant role in evolving people's thinking. One of the things that I really love to do and that I had the opportunity to do when I first started working with the Pop Culture Collaborative and my colleague Tracy Van Slyke and I, you know, we were the only two people hired when we originally launched and we would sit in like virtual rooms talking to each other and trying to understand what was this space between like a really great story that some artist wants to tell, like the creators of Will and Grace and the kind of really, really huge widespread change that emerges when momentum builds through these kinds of cultural moments. And we took a long look at the marriage equality case study. And what we discovered, which was really fascinating to us, is that Yes, Will and Grace was an incredible milestone, as was the Ellen DeGeneres show and others that came out at a particular time. But when you look at the at like the polling, right, the public sentiment polling around marriage equality, 
what you see is actually during the time of the Will and Grace and Ellen DeGeneres, you know, coming out kind of moments in pop culture, the public sentiment was actually lower and at a pretty steady pace. So they were creating, those kinds of shows were creating like very modest spikes in the polling. But there's this incredible moment in 2009, in, if you look at a 20-year span, when the public sentiment begins to shoot up at a much more radical pace. That's something that you would call like statistically like an aberration, right? So we started to zone in kind of like investigators and say, what happened in 2009 that made such a difference around the marriage equality conversation? And what was really fascinating, what we discovered, is that there were a couple of really important interventions that happened at that moment. The first is that the movement for marriage equality had kind of one of those like deep reckoning moments, right? Where after a series of really devastating losses around marriage bans and other kinds of laws across the country, they really began to realize that their strategy wasn't working. We often sort of joke that in the social justice world, there's an awful lot of lawyers in our movements, right? So we believe in the power of the law and the ability to change the law. And they were, you know, this is a movement that was using a a law-based argument for why marriage equality mattered. They were talking about civil rights. We have the right to have access to the rights of other people. We are being mistreated. We are not equal. Healthcare was a huge issue for your partner. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And they realized that that wasn't working. And the reason was because the average person who thinks about marriage doesn't actually think much about the law, right? They don't think about the thousands of benefits and pathways to opportunity that are unlocked for people who are married. They don't think about that. They think about love. They think about relationship. They think about family. They think about home. And so in 2009, the movement began to understand that they were fighting a cultural battle using the law. And they needed to start fighting with culture in a much more strategic way. So they began to actually reshape their story into a story about love and commitment and family and the real deep pain that people feel who don't have access to the like basic supports that enable them to fall in love and get married, to raise a family with security, to buy a home, all of those kinds of experiences. And they began to see a change just by narratively shifting the story that they as a movement were telling. The other thing that they did, and this is work that was really deeply informed by the genius of one of our grantees at the Pop Culture Collaborative, Rashad Robinson, who is the president of one of the largest online racial justice movements in the world, Color of Change. But before he was at Color of Change, Rashad was the head of programs for GLAAD. And in that capacity, he sat down with dozens and dozens of television showrunners And he said, you know, it's not that we just want you to represent gay and lesbian people in your shows. It's not that we want you to represent us. We want you to tell the stories that are most strategic, that will most 
influence people who are struggling to get on board with the idea of same-sex marriage. And those stories aren't necessarily just about gay people. They discovered that one of the groups of people who is genuinely very authentically struggling with this idea was parents, parents of queer kids. And particularly, they identified men, fathers, who couldn't wrap their brains around the fact that the son or the daughter that they, you know, always thought was going to have this kind of life was queer and was going to have a different life. And so they wanted showrunners to tell the story of parents who confront their bigotry and realize that their bigotry is actually threatening the survival of their relationship with their children. And threatening the survival of their children. Yes, exactly. So that's why in 2009, 10, 11, 12, you started to see storylines like Glee and the incredible story of Kurt and his father on Glee and the beautiful journey that his father traveled from like, I don't understand you and where's my child that I thought you were to like, I'm going to defend you and protect your right to be you against anybody who comes for you, right? That you saw stories like Modern Family, where this, you know, you went from a father who made really derisive jokes about his son's relationship and really just kind of reinforced the sense that your relationship's not valid to deciding to walk his son down the aisle on the day of his wedding, right? Like we see these very complex humane, nuanced arcs of these parents who changed, who dared to change because their child needed them to. And that storytelling, right, which wasn't about a gay or lesbian person, it was about a parent who was afraid. Right. All right. So again, like you're spawning all these different things in my head. Let me touch on a third rail issue because I I know you're going to have an opinion on this. So I've had Aria Saeed on from Transgender District. I've had Simon Tan on from the Slants Foundation. We talk about this. Where is the line between you know art and comedy and then intent and or malintent or unintended consequences? So I'll give you just a very kind of recent fresh example. And I'm sure you've been asked this before. Chappelle and his latest show. I don't, have you seen it? I'm sure you have. I haven't seen it. I've read the transcript. Okay. Well, it's interesting, actually, reading the transcript probably is because it lacks, as you know, transcripts lack the kind of emotiveness around and the context and how they do the presentation, the style, right? Where do you think comedy sits in this intersectionality between social justice, awareness, activism, and art? (laughs) Because... I flip-flop constantly. And, and I think about Ricky Gervais. He's like, you might not disagree with me, but doesn't mean you're right. <laughs> you know. And he also is a little bit of a lightning rod right, in what he says. So I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on, and one, the Chappelle transcript that you read, but also kind of where we are as a society and how do we navigate that? Yeah, it's a really great question. And then surprisingly, I've never publicly been asked that yet. I've been sort of having a lot of, you know, conversations within our team and within our community about the Chappelle 
you know, the Chappelle show and the streaming services, Netflix's response to it. And so I'm happy. I'm happy for the opportunity to just to chat about it. You know, I am of the opinion that there are different genres of entertainment, different ways that we create content, ways that we tell stories. But fundamentally, the question isn't about like, where does comedy sit on the line versus drama versus, you know, other kinds of pop culture experience. The real issue is, if we are creating content that we can realistically assume is going to have a harmful effect on a person or a group of people, is going to inspire greater violence, for instance, for a group of people, then we have to be accountable to that. And the problem with, I think, with Dave Chappelle's approach, and actually with Netflix's approach, is that there's a lack of accountability, right? Like, you can decide that you want to, if that's your choice, you can decide to stand by what you made. But you also have to hold the fact and acknowledge the fact that you have done harm, right? You have to be the person who intentionally, knowledgeably did harm and doesn't care about it. You actually have to say, I'm that person. I'm the person who is saying things that are harmful, that are reinforcing millions of people's bigotry as it relates to trans people particularly trans women of color. And you have to kind of like stand firm in the fact that you are a person who has actually taken those actions, who has made those comments, and who wants to stand by it. And that's what personally I'm not saying. And there's absolutely no contrition alongside of that. And I think that's what you're talking about. And in fact, there's like a kind of crisis management machine that is obstructing the process of transformative justice and real accountability to harm, right? Like that's, I think, the thing that it feels most sickening to those of us who are engaged in the work of creating more safety and security and opportunity and freedom for trans people. And I count myself among the sort of allies who are doing that work and working alongside really brilliant, particularly Black trans women who are leading in that work. I cannot abide by the lack of accountability and the lack of taking responsibility for what is clearly harmful content. You know, there's just, if the lawyers are telling you that you should skirt the issue or that you shouldn't take responsibility, that's a choice. But the reality is that it's doing harm and the humane and just approach would be to acknowledge that and to be responsible to it. I will say that I think that for any content, not just comedy, comedy is more complicated because comedians, the talent of comedians is to like ride the line between what's appropriate and not appropriate to say. I acknowledge that. I grew up, my father was a deep, deep fan of a lot of Black comedians. I grew up listening to Richard Pryor. I grew up with Eddie Murphy. I really really loved Dave Chappelle. But I can't, I really did for many, many years. And I don't have that feeling anymore because of the way that he is behaving and the choices that he's making in this moment. And isn't it really about 
you know, evolving, right? So you mentioned Eddie Murphy. I'm glad you did because so I think I've mentioned this in a different podcast a couple months ago, just for kind of, you know, shits and giggles. I went back and I re-listened to Raw and Delirious. Now, I'm 51. So I was like a teenager at the time, like older teenager, 17, 18, 19. And I remember laughing so hard, I was crying. Like I loved it. He was so funny back then. And now I watch it and I was just like cringing, holding my breath. And I'm like, this is not funny. It's all about the timestamp and how you grow as a person, right? In Chappelle, I, I get it. He left, whatever. He turned down $50 million, blah, blah, blah. But like, I think he's a genius. But I too share with you some disappointment because he has not evolved. He doesn't understand the impact of what he's saying on, to not be all rabbinical, quote my rabbi, the other, right? He doesn't understand the damage that that causes, that creates, potentially leading to violence and death. Yeah, I agree. I had the same experience <laughs> with Eddie Murphy's content, actually, and not just the the comedy specials, but I also remember watching um, Trading Places. Oh my god, yeah. Which I mean, again, when I originally watched that movie, I think I'd, I've seen it dozens of times because I I thought of it as like just really well constructed storytelling for the time. And it was for the time. It was during the point when we were like thinking about, you know, wealth and corporate greed. And there was just the beginning of really trying to unpack like systemic racism. And this this film had some edges to it that seemed really, really cutting edge at the time. And, you know, it's absolutely clear that that, that film does not it's clear that we live in a different context now in which that's not as funny as it was. And it, I don't think a film that would be made today and it's important to like view it in that context. And I do think that like the challenge for artists and particularly for comedians in this moment is to navigate the culture that we are currently living in, that you're currently introducing your your work into and growing with the culture. And the culture is not one in which that kind of language and approach is acceptable to millions of people. No, I agree. And I think that extends to music as well, right? So I think it's overall kind of art and entertainment. I, I just have to ask you because Clearly, you like taking on like very big challenges. There are a lot of very difficult kind of systems to challenge, right? I think one of the biggest ones, one of the greatest ones outside of, say, NFL and Facebook, because those are like their own kind of nation states, is the entertainment industry. Most people would be like, and you've been in it, right? Since you're very young, like this is your whole life. And you've played multiple roles. Most people would be like, you know what? screw those showrunners, actors, producers, directors, like they're just, it's not worth it. I'm just going to walk away and do something different. What made you stay and fight and bring this to the fore? And I think it's important and I respect you for that, but a lot of people just don't have that fight in them. I don't know if I ever considered that I had a choice, but to stay and fight. And it may be because of how I was raised and who raised me, you know, my my mom's family, you know, has deep, deep legacy 
in the civil rights movement, all of her siblings were engaged in dismantling Jim Crow and from a very deeply unglamorous place, like in small towns in Jim Crow era, Georgia, you know, marching and being jailed in tiny, tiny rural jails for, you know, days on end. My mom was one of the teenagers who integrated Tybee Beach outside of Savannah. And, you know, this was really, really dangerous work. And so I like the bedtime stories that I grew up with as a kid were about, you know, black young people who put their lives on the line to create change in the world. And so the idea that you would get out of the fight because it's hard is just like not in my DNA. It's not in my imagination. It was really just about like realizing that, you know, I thought that I was fighting by being an incredibly well-trained, passionate, creative artist. I thought that's my defense. I'm going to be really good at this like acting thing, this this storytelling thing and that's the way that I'm going to be a part of changing representation for instance in the theater and film world. And I realized that the fight was much much bigger than representation that it was about narrative and the stories that we tell that are reinforcing or resisting like the dehumanization of black and brown people of immigrants of women queer people trans folks like i i just realized that i needed to up my game i needed to get deeper into the fight and i need to fight differently in order to be satisfied that i really contributed all that I can contribute. And that's why moving what feels like actually a sacrifice. I love being on stage. I love making stuff. And I made the choice to move out of that work, you know, for some time in order to attend to the structural issues that are preventing people, artists like myself, from making the work and millions of people from engaging in more liberating stories. And so, yeah, I don't have a choice. I really genuinely don't think I do. Well, and now as someone who is behind the curtain, are you finding a greater level of receptivity, interest that's genuine, not just commercial? Because, you know, I I often will say, well, XYZ company did the right thing, but for the wrong reason, but I'll still take it because it's the right thing. And oftentimes the wrong reason comes back to monetization. It's because there's some sort of capital gain. But at the end of the day, though, they still did what I wanted them to do, which has some sort of social impact. So are you finding, though, that there is more openness and receptivity? Are you feeling hopeful? Are you optimistic? You seem like an optimistic person in general, but I just you also seem very real. So I just I'm just kind of balancing those things. Yeah, I do genuinely feel very optimistic. I, like so many people in our field, in the narrative change field, and and the social justice movements, where everybody's exhausted, we get up and get knocked down by the like virulence, the violence, the vitriol that is so kind of normalized at this point in American culture. Every day we have to sort of like rise up and say, okay, like we're trying to move move the needle here. 
But I do believe that we have moved the needle. We have so much proof that that movements working in partnership with the pop culture industries are creating a bigger and bigger population of people in this country who understand that we're fighting to preserve democracy and understand their role in helping to preserve democracy, understand that we are fighting to transform and reimagine, you know, public safety and know they come when they are called to get to the streets, to call, you know, their elected officials, to talk to their families and friends. They understand their role. We know that there are more and more people who understand that we have a very short window in which to dismantle a whole set of policies and norms that are creating climate crisis. The reality is that movements have actually dramatically expanded the number of people who understand that they have a role to play in creating more justice, in building towards a pluralist nation. They get it. So I feel like when we focus on what we are gaining every day through all of this work and this kind of deep collaboration, my day is full of hope, full of it. I love that. And as an average consumer or any consumer, anybody, I hate the word consumer, it's really a bad word. As a human being listening to this show, someone like me, I consume a lot of content. And there's also, I think you you could argue we are all battling against the commoditization of content. I think Netflix has created that. It's just too much. And it's not all good. That's the problem is that things that have become commodities, you also denigrate the quality and the impact of the content that you're creating, right? So I feel like it's very commoditized right now. What advice do you have for human beings who consume a lot of content in terms of guiding us on the right content to consume? And I, I know we all have freedom to consume whatever we want. But, you know, sometimes I'm in the mood for things that are very serious and other times are things that are lighthearted, but I still think you can, you can have messaging that gets delivered in both kind of genres, right? What advice do you have for just the average ordinary human being that's a huge consumer of content? I would share three things. The first is to be actively curious and critical of the content. So like you have to Every time you, you know, engage in a show or a video comes across your social media feed or, you know, you get the latest album, whatever it is, you have to actually start asking yourself questions like the ones we were talking about in relationship to the comedy special on Netflix. What is making me feel good about this content? What is actually potentially not helpful or harmful about what's going on in this content? Who's the storyteller? Do I trust the storyteller? Is this a reliable source for this perspective? Is it the most authentic source for this particular story? Those are all questions that we need to ask. We need to start seeing the systems inside of the story that we're consuming. So if you love crime procedurals, you need to be asking yourself, "Mm, is this just about a lawyer who's trying to win their case? Or is this a story about the criminal justice system? And is this a story that I believe in that's actually helping to elucidate what is 
fundamentally corrupted about that system? Or is it really like, you know, shining a light on a new kind of more transformative approach? That's the first thing. Gotta get critical. The second is if people are anything like me in American society and American education system, most of our education in K through 12 education is written by and focused through a white lens. So we have a lot of work to do. We actually have to actively look for content that's created by BIPOC people, by people who have been historically excluded from the American cultural canon, right? And I would say it's a white lens and highly genderized and also able-bodied. And able-bodied, exactly. So we have to actually look out, actively seek out content by BIPOC people, content by disabled storytellers, content by trans storytellers, by immigrants, both people who are citizened and people who are undocumented. We've got to actively expand our canon because that's actually the community where storytelling innovation is rising and where some of the truth that we were denied in our K through 12 education exists, right? So we need to go and actively look for it. And then the third thing is, is we have to actually start voting with our viewership and with our contribution. So we have to look for the ways that we can visibilize our valuing, our love for this content. So we need to share about it on social media. We need to tell people about the content that we love that we're discovering. We need to actively become organizers and point our friends and our family members towards other kinds of content because that is the way that we begin to normalize a new landscape of narrative content in this country. And then in some cases, we have to, when it's independent storytellers who are not financed by studios or streaming services and the like, and they're independently distributing their work, we have to figure out if there are ways that we can actually invest in their work. Do they have a Patreon? Do they have other ways that you can actually express your gratitude for their art by actually investing in them, whether in small or large part? So we have like clear roles that we can play to be a part of the narrative transformation that's underway. So last question, I promise. Did you watch I May Destroy You? I did. That was a moment for me. And I'm like a, I'm very, very left. I take allyship very seriously. I devote so much of my time to trying to give back and when my wife and I sat down and watched that, not because anybody told us, and it spawned the idea when you said, you know, share it, make sure you spread it, you know, whatever. Nobody told us to watch it. We were literally just bored one day, flipping, flipping, flipping. And I'm like, huh, this looks interesting. And we couldn't stop. And it also, at the same time, moments in that series made me so uncomfortable, squirmy. And I loved it. The other thing I think is really important, again, you're the expert in this, I'm not, but I think we have to be comfortable with discomfort because we can't grow without discomfort. You can't have growth, right? And I think that series, and I've never actually mentioned it on my show, and I told as many people as I possibly could, and I think that series captures so much of what you're talking about when it comes to narrative and art form, right? That series like knocked me down. It was so brilliant, so exquisite and hard. Really hard. 
I do not know how she did it. I literally thought and thought and thought after watching it, how do you create such a brilliant story that's working on so many different layers of time and space dimension? Like it was incredible. And I think that part of the feat of it was that she created real discomfort and cognitive dissonance and confusion where you come to trust somebody and you realize that that person is a perpetrator of harm or, you know, you think this is what happened and then you get your entire kind of assumption gets devastated in, you know, in the next episode. I think that's just like incredibly ingenious art. Yeah. And she allowed her character to be so vulnerable to also show their own flaws and their own struggles because it's a universal thing about human beings. Nobody is all good or all bad. We're a little bit of everything. That's just the reality of it, right? And I think that show captured that in a way that I've never seen before. And I just wanted to end on that because I think that everybody needs to watch that. It's so powerful. And I think that in so many ways, it brings to the fore that intersectionality between what you're talking about between, you know, art and entertainment and social justice, broadly speaking. So listen, Bridget Antoinette Evans, I'm going to say the whole thing because I love it. <laughs> it is so great to have you on the show and I hope to have you back on the show. I, I don't say it. it that often and I appreciate everything you're doing. You have my head spinning in a really good way and I'm sure hopefully our listeners will have the same kind of effect. And I wish you all the best and everything that you're going to continue to do and transforming not just the industry, but also society as a whole. So thank you. Thank you. This was a pleasure. And you're right. We have more to discuss. So until next time. Thanks. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quitkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com. Mm-hmm.